She's that sweet spot where the sweet potatoes touch the macaroni and cheese for any chore. And they're the kimchi to my fusion burrito, Danette Smith. And you're listening to Versus, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Hello, Danette Smith. Hello, Vernal. How you doing? (laughs) Hello. I'm good. You know, just uh, chilling here, trying to get some writing done. Sometimes. Ooh, a task. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a task. Jeez. How's, uh, how's writing going for you? Writing for me is local, I feel like. What do you mean by that? I, I just noticed that like I've been writing about home in a major way. Having to be in Minneapolis has made like my poems like, yeah, a lot more here um, mm. and my essays and stuff like that. So that's been like, yeah, that's been super interesting. I feel changed as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. How about you? What you been thinking about? Well, you know, I've been going back through some old poems mm-hmm. recently. I mean, not not old, actually, not that old. Like mm-hmm. the book that is my most recent book, Soft mm-hmm. Science, came out in 2019, but 2019 feels so long ago. Yeah, and you ways. wrote them poems in 2018 and before, you know, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, sometimes it's like hard to reconnect to old poems, but, you know, looking back at some of that older work and thinking about, at what points I was actually kind of ahead of myself in some Ooh. ways in the writing, like like not necessarily in a good way or maybe in a good way, but like I think that going back through old poems makes me kind of like reconfront the ways that I was maybe actually not ready to be writing that poem, hmm. you know, sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have this experience, but like going back and being like, oh man, you were like so early in this thinking, like you were so early in the f- in this feeling and um, hmm. like the poem that you would write is like so different. I'm sure that you have this experience. Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. I can think of a whole, like where the poem is sort of revealing something about your life that your your life is not ready for, right? Mm, um, yeah. Or a thought that your brain or your heart isn't necessarily ready for, for sure. I yeah. think... Um, you know, I actually now I'm thinking about um, this poem from uh, "Don't Call Us Dead." Um, Crown. I was just trying to, I was just trying to write some sounds. You know, I was just trying to have fun with like words and sounds and shit and images. And then all of a sudden, I was because writing it's about a sonnet. Yeah. yeah, because it's a it's a it's a sonnet and like also like that poem sort of relishes in um, this like sort of like lyric I think kind of like falling over itself that I think it does Mm -hmm. and like picking up words and different repetitions that it's doing on the inside Mm -hmm. but it ends up being about parenthood and like I remember like writing that poem being like like kind of hyperventilating a little bit after because it it was the first time that I think I had really started to think about parenthood for myself um, and how uh, my diagnosis had like complicated or altered that for me or like just put another pressure on it and so it was one of those poems that like you know it was like oh i need where is my therapist now to (laughs) talk about this because and then it's a i think the poem presents the question like is this me that's actually saying this or is it just where the poem went but where the poem went it felt true and i feel like i've had that moment a lot of times where it feels like the first time i'm able to even start on telling the truth Mm. happens in the poems and then i'm kind of asked to live up to who who wrote that, you know, or that energy that wrote that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel that so much. Like, I I think I feel this most looking back to my first book, realizing that there are certain poems in there where I was at the beginning of thinking about them in that, like, implicated myself in them. For example, there's a poem in there about, like, dating a white man Mm -hmm. um, and, like, kind of what, what it was like to, like, sort of look at myself as an Asian 
American woman dating a white man at the time. And I think like that poem was really important for my development. It felt exciting to write at the time because it was like new. It was new Hmm. thinking. But I think that that newness, which is like awesome from a craft perspective, was like kind of hard on the heart, you know, and hard on like my relationships, you know? And so, yeah, it's not that I like regret writing that poem or regret sharing it, but I think that I was kind of like making a path forward for myself in a way that maybe I hadn't yet been ready for Hmm. at the time. The poem kind of helped me start to get there or it didn't even, it didn't even necessarily put me on that path. It just like, opened the path so then i was like looking at it you know it just happens yo like i was talking about this with somebody the other day like sometimes like you get ahead of yourself you know and like there's there's the things that pop up into your head the bits of language you know the whatevers the things that make you run to the page and say i gotta write this shit down and then once you get there sometimes you get and you say whoa 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 i was like me poem we didn't agree to say all that right 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 right. (laughs) you know we did not agree to say all this um and you really have to confront that like even when you are in that sort of automatic space of writing the poem once you're outside of it you click back into that normal human space and mm-hmm. that i think is the frightening part that you realize like there was a you that felt free enough to say that um mm-hmm. in the space of that poem and what does it mean to confront um what else in your life that that saying um has consequence to you know yeah. and, and those are the type of um social agreements between us and our poems that I don't think we're always like privy to when we get into this game because the more you trust poems, the more they will like lead you into these, you know, unlockable, automatic, like really like freeing spaces where you can tell the truth about some shit and being able to really wrestle with what it meant to say that in a space of such freedom that is creating the poem sometimes. I mean, you know, I think it they it can be a challenge, you know, to then say like, okay, like self, we got to give up, we got to make more room for what this poem had to say. Um, mm, totally. You know, yeah. um, but it's hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are so excited to talk to Lalan Osman, who in the course of this interview said the phrase, um, I needed to change my life. Um, and Dinez and I have just been like trying to wrap our heads around that and what it means to manifest huge changes in your life in the space of the art that you're making and also in the space around the art that you're making. Um, So we're really excited to share this interview with Lovan. She's one of our favorite writers and we were so, so, so thrilled to have her on the show. Lovan Osman is the author of Exiles of Eden and The Kitchen Dweller's Testimony, winner of the Sillerman Prize. She has received fellowships from the Missioner Center, Kaveh Kanem, and the Lannan Foundation. Her poems have been published widely and translated. She was the writer for Son of the Soil, a short documentary on the complicated legacy of Malian emperor Mansa Musa. It will premiere at the New York African Film Festival. Osman's directorial debut, The Ascendant, is forthcoming in October. She lives in New York City. I am so, 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 so excited to get into this interview with Leather with y'all. And she is going to start us off, of course, with a poem. Devotional with misheard lyrics. There are so many boys from other realms running in your hallway. It's been a while since I heard spirits pacing, chasing each other, or little horses galloping in the sink, whinnying in the walls. We're in the habit of discussing nightmares, a pair of sullen eyes, women who kill themselves twice. I've met and disregarded them. Your name? 
your name again? My heart is filed to a point. Heavy tip, heavy blade, light handle, no sheath. Unzip me and I'll be the same but softer, lighter skinned underneath, my face and feet the same color, no blemishes, too much hair. I feel like my force field is on high power. I should drink more water. Afternoon and evening pass a sequence of minor tremors in my wrists, forearms, an algorithm reduces me to one sentence. I am such a long day. I'm often tired with my 11 o'clock. I force a 10 into a coin machine and put all my silver monies in my breast pocket. My heart is heavy on the bottom again. When exiting, I see a woman holding many bags. She's tired, I think. Let me move. Let me wait. It's a reflection. I'm the woman with Monday night bags hanging off her wrists. I smell like figs. Boiled figs. In Somali, timid sounds like date. Americans confuse dates and figs. I can't eat twice with a man who does this. You just want to be adored, you said. Then came next to worship over dinner, rubbery plantains and two women blushing and listening to you praise me. If it were permissible to exalt a mortal, you. You didn't say that. I'm the most romantic man I know. I'm simple only in this. I need two armed hugs. I sing in the street. Small blasphemy in the diaphragm's dome. My lover's not human. Amen. At the shrine of your light, like a dog, like a dog. Wow. <laughs> and that poem is from freaking Hoosier, right? Take yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just kept listening to it because I misheard. So what I heard was like, how does that song go? Take me to church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I was. I heard. I thought he sang, "My lover's not human. She's a gaggle at a funeral, like a gaggle of geese." And I was like, "Oh wow, this is an interesting song. I'll I'll listen to this. I'll keep listening to this." And realize later. Yeah. What are the actual lyrics? She's a giggle at a funeral. Like I guess she's irreverent. <laughs> it's totally different than what I heard. I was like, <laughs> "She's a shapeshifter. This is terrifying." <laughs> And I think he says at the shrine of your lies, and I thought he said light. Mm. And I prefer a shrine of light. So I was like, well, I'm just going to redo this, I think, of what I heard and what I'm thinking about when I'm listening to this melancholy song. Yeah, shrine of your light is better, and gaggle at a funeral is definitely better. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in Ohio, there are those, <laughs> there are geese everywhere, <laughs> and they're very um, aggressive sometimes. You know, but I'm sure we've aggressed against them a lot. So that the idea that there would just be a bunch of them hanging out while someone is being buried, like it felt like, you know, this like bizarre story of Jefferson. He trained his parrot and the parrot cursed him at his funeral was just like Wait, which screaming. Jefferson? Like the, the president? Thomas? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, um, <laughs> that person they called president once, that criminal. Yeah, no, I'm like, he just seems, parrots seem too good for him. I'm like, no, no, no. You <laughs> nah, can't have he had some kind, I'm pretty sure, like he had a, like he taught it to, I don't know, say some things, but it was just screaming obscenities. I don't know if this oh, is real or just God. like a myth. I'll try and find the citation somewhere. But I was like, this is one of the most frightening things I've heard in a long time. Like, if that's not a terrible, terrible omen and a judgment, I don't know what is. Right. Hmm. God, I would be so embarrassed. <laughs> like, I think that to remove it. Like, I don't know that it was just like cursing, like, LOL. Like, I think it was 
doing something in an unnerving way, but maybe that's just how I want to remember it. It was like, fuck <laughs> you, Tom. Fuck you, Tommy. <laughs> I love the idea that like, like it's kind of a myth now because you hope it happened. And that, that's yeah, exactly. all it takes a myth. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the call in the last poem um, in Exiles of Eden, right? That we need new myths. Mm-hmm. Um, True. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering maybe just as a way into the book or into the work, how you, um, I guess what happens when you, encounter a myth or a mishearing. I feel like there's so much about mishearing something in your work um, and letting that language like then be preserved on the page. What what happens when you mishear something? How does it live with you? And how how does it change by the time it's got to the poem that we see? What happens for me in my mind, this is terrible and I don't, I'm not trying to like mock anybody except for maybe like bros in Manhattan or something (laughs) like what happens for me is it really energizes me when I mishear something and but the thing sounds closer to what's true the thing sounds Mm. closer to what language is supposed to be doing Mm. and Mm. you know even though I've been so much inside of English for most of my life I still misspeak especially when I'm tired It's really a struggle to put sentences together and, you know, to to use the word that I'm supposed to use or to follow a common syntax. And so Mm -hmm. when I hear other people for whatever reason, especially because they're so angry, they're sputtering, for example, or something so outrageous happened that there's not clear language for it, even if they're, you know... Uh, and uh, speaking English their whole lives, like that's the only language they knew, that is another English um, that is meaningful and, mm-hmm. and needs to be addressed. And so I think for me, the, the best way that I can describe what happens to me and inside of me is like I was at this very weird club with like a, a former friend and it just was not the kind of scene like I feel like when I went dancing I would go to like small places in Brooklyn or to like the shrine mm. in Harlem I didn't understand the music I didn't understand what's going on it was like a sped up Britney Spears which is fine but I was not sure like how to dance to that there are all these people that seem to be like maybe extremely high from cocaine like Wall Street type bros that were out with their like giant blonde girlfriends and oh, they no, were just why like there? <laughs> somebody took me there and I didn't I didn't ask follow-up questions. I was relatively new to New York. I didn't know what was happening. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like in a cardigan. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but there was this guy that was just w- like walking backwards and walking forwards as if someone was pressing rewind, fast forward, rewind, fast forward. And even his voice, he's like, and I was just like, this is so weird but also amazing but I feel like that's actually exactly what my brain does like you know on cassettes back in the day Mm -hmm. and you press rewind while play is still on you know you can fuck Mm -hmm, up your cassette mm -hmm. that way but like that sound Mm -hmm. and that urgency you forgot to press stop and then rewind and so that for me when I hear and miss here it's like wow that person said something so strange let me note it in my phone or on a scrap of paper wait so the the sound that's made when you press rewind without pressing stop like that's the thing that is misheard or like what yeah it's like that it's like that staggering stuttering like Hmm. run it back but it's not like smooth because it's you're so excited like i just well let me just hear that again let me translate that to myself it's that energy but also Hmm. yeah the energy of that very strange individual that was just having a moment in like, I don't even know what it was, like a space that's also <laughs> sells objects. Like it was like a, I guess it was supposed to be a high-end pawn shop. 
Oh, but okay. it had like weird things, like a giant Ronald McDonald. But I don't know. It was weird. I d- zero out of that- ten. Do not recommend. <laughs> that is a particular nightmare to be brought to a party that's just the wrong party for where you're at and then to know Wrong that you're vibes. gonna be stuck there yeah to be no, like no i wasn't stuck there oh you weren't i was like i'm leaving here. okay that's great that's good. There. i was like this is not safe for me i was like it was like being in an amsterdam airport like everybody was like why are they so tall it was like giant blonde people <laughs> they are tall that were extremely high it's like i don't know they are tall as fuck um you had mentioned just like what language does and i think um, I was looking like I've like flipped over your book and I was like, oh shit, I forgot I blurb this. And I looked at my blurb and I was like, this blurb <laughs> sucks. What? Your blurb is amazing. Because I'm trying to praise it and I look at that blurb and I'm like, oh, Denez, you were like flabbergasted because you had just read this book and I'm so in love with the way you use language. And I think like the actual blurb that I could write would have required me to actually sit with that book on like two, three reads so I can get past. I look at my blurb and I see myself caught up in what you do with language and not thinking about what's happening within that language Um, and like the stories that you're telling. And so I guess I want to know, what do you believe language does or what language is supposed to do? Jeez, what a question. I mean, I think it can do so much. And language has worlds. It contains worlds in the sense that it has worlds in it, but also reigns them in and closes them, Mm -hmm. sometimes in an embrace, sometimes in a much more violent way. Mm -hmm. Like I think about Jamaica Kincaid's writings about colony and about voyeurism and um, voyaging and Mm -hmm. (laughs) the violence it takes to just show up somewhere that you're not even supposed to be in the first place, that you didn't intend to go, right? Christopher Columbus, Mm -hmm. he'd be like, that's what this place is called. And this other place is called this. And I'm just doing what I'm doing. Like the carelessness that that takes is something I've Mm. been really thinking about to just know something, to just know what to call something, Mm. that that's one limited way to use language, but what language itself is. And I'm not counting just like spoken language or written language, but the language of gesture, the language mm-hmm. that is unspoken, the language that like MIT's labs are trying to capture now uh, through this bizarre technology. Like they're trying to capture brain waves and make them make commands. So I Whoa. guess to like be able to Google things sounds to me extraordinarily dangerous and like terrible things can come of this. But, you know, if they wow. mean well, they're I guess. They're trying to make language out of like the thought that makes language right. happen. So and this idea that there's such a thing as a brain Wi-Fi, that people who are close to each other are in the same home or the way that Mm. panic can spread among people in this unspoken way, Mm. that maybe there's a whole other plane that we don't yet have the technology for. It could very well be 20 years from now, something that we thought was just uh, fanciful or sometimes captured in poetry or there's an attempt to capture it is actually totally discernible. It has a wavelength. Apple has a product <laughs> so that we could, you know, in in his unhinged interview in, uh, what was it, like GQ or something, Donald Glover is talking about, like, how he wants this thing to be able to do that. To be able to, like, send commands to your computer or yeah, your phone Yeah, it was, like, something about how he, he, was, he was hoping, he was hoping that, like, Elon Musk... Would, like had to, I was like, sir. Anytime we got a hope and Elon Musk is involved. I know. I was like, excuse me, Emerald Mine, Elon Musk. Ugh. Mm. Anyways, I'm just like thinking, just still processing what you said about the colonial violence of naming. 
and like how we as writers like have to encounter that in like the work that we do like how do you get around that or how do you move through that knowing that that violent um action is like part of the work that we have to do yeah i mean i think that i do grapple with that and sometimes feel some distance from the artifact itself that is a word you know the hope is that it's not immovable for me i understand Mm -hmm. that there's some kind of permanence that it's printed in a book but i think the only way that i can make peace with it is to think about it as something that is evolving that other people can participate in that other people can challenge Mm. uh, that other people can add to music is like that right that we're still hearing riffs we're still hearing bridges that started out from joyful like cries of praise that became uh tormented work songs that are now an aspect of like pop songs Mm. that we wish that we could dance to in a sweaty club like that act of participation that exists in so many things, I'm always hopeful that that exists in poetry, but it is, it's a nervous thing. I do feel kind of not uncertain exactly because I tried my best in the in the moment that I had and the person that I was in the moment that I was trying it. But yeah, I think the distance is what makes me have more peace with it, that mm. the poems that I wrote when I was 23, 24 years old, I stand by them. I know it was mm. my best absolute work, but at the same time, I've changed, I've been changed by readers. I've been changed by other poets, Mm. including you two. So there's a a gap, right, between book one and two. There's a gap between the second book. There's more, I I hope for, maturity on a human level of knowing what I don't know and being uh, comfortable that you can still be a craftsperson, you can still yearn for some kind of precision, but that it's going to be ungraspable in a certain way, that there's no such thing as the final word Hmm. and that that's okay. Yeah, I hear you saying in that, like, the things that we create, that we don't control how they move through the world and how they, like, move through people. That feels like something that, like, you can either have anxiety about or, or, like, and you can also, like, see that as a beautiful opening thing like Mm. on a way to like allow your poems to change but also i think that like what i hear you saying is like giving yourself as a writer like a kind of grace to know that like we as writers are also capable of change not just that like our the way that our work moves through the world but like that we are capable of change and that we never have to like stop our definition of who we are as artists right Mm -hmm. like i was sitting with like three of your bios to prepare this for this interview, right? And at one point, it's like poet. And then it's like poet and essayist. And then it's poet and filmmaker, right? And so like poet photographer, right? You're always kind of like imagining more possibilities for yourself for the work and like where that can go. And I think it does have to take like sort of a, a openness that I'm hearing you talk about, right? To have like the grace to allow who you've been to like be great and not to have any sort of bearing or constriction upon who you might become. Mm-hmm. Has that been challenging at times to give yourself that that grace for change or like to allow yourself that possibility? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it can be because you have to <laughs> let go of certain ideas of validation and certain ideas of acceptance or success, I think. And every move I've tried to make in writing and other things, there was someone and very often someone that I trusted or someone that 
was a mentor or something would tell me not to do it. You know, mm. oh, you can't ask all these questions in one poem. You can't move from one image to the next in this way. Why would you include images in the text of something? Does it make sense to do a visual essay in this way? Oh, I don't know. Can you really do photography? I don't think that you should do that. Oh, filmmaking. How do you think that that's going to work? Like, why would you even try? And so it's just this. Other people have. Even sometimes in their admiration, they have a very fixed idea of us. Sometimes、Ooh. they want to see you in a very specific way, and、mm -hmm. it's unfortunate that sometimes what I need to do to gather myself is to have private time. So sometimes when I look back at my work, like I'm grateful for the opportunity to have been able to do it. And when I say grateful, it's not like to institutions. Like I'm grateful to God. I'm grateful to be、mm. here. And among other people, I'm grateful for Lucille Clifton and June Jordan and Toni、mm. Morrison and Jamaica Kincaid.、Mm. I'm grateful for just the opportunity that I got to read these works and that I had time to sit with them and to make something. But at the same time, it it requires, as I'm sure you both know, a certain level of solitude、mm. and the self to reassure yourself. Um, especially when there are some, you know, institutional roadblocks, because there are some ways that I have experienced a lot of fortune and a lot of favor that I don't ascribe to just like being great or something like that. I mean, there are a lot of things in writing and in this career that are just good luck, right person at the right time, someone recommending you to somebody else. I'm grateful for the opportunity to do this work, but. Sometimes it's been so lonely. Like、mm. it's like, wow, I could have been doing foolishness, and I was just at this desk, like <laughs> trying to figure myself out or walking around by myself with a camera because I needed to break through.、Mm. I needed to change my own life.、Mm. And sometimes that intensity means that we lose friendships, we lose or have misunderstood our relationships to family members. Uh, it it means that you know like messy endings to romantic relationships, you know. But I think it's like anything. You don't have to be an artist to have experienced that. I think anybody who's trying to make something happen in the world and trying to make something happen with themselves in any kind of job, any kind of role, at any height that that is, is not the easiest thing. When you take your life seriously, or you're attempting to take your life seriously, or you want to put yourself in the company, just even wanting to sit at the feet of people who take their lives seriously,、mm. is sometimes met, especially as a black woman, is met with a lot of ridicule, a lot of abuse, a lot of harassment, and you know, I I do have to say that. Part of what has been a torment too is the ways that I felt sometimes, up until probably last year, that I failed on a personal level, or the ways that I was not able to break through institutionally. I was supposed to try and push some things or some people down on behalf of young African poets, especially because they are the ones who write to me with the same. Problems that I was having ten years ago,、mm. the same abuse, the same dismissals, and that was really a torment to me because I was like, if what if I had just had coffee with that jerk who was like harassing me in Instagram DMs? Like, what if I just like let myself not be taken very seriously by like some dude that's just like only like 
trying to do x-ray vision, like looking at my legs or something? Or what if I had just let myself have a closer relationship with like these people that like straight up bully other writers? Like what if I just let myself be seen more? Maybe I should have just like went into that group picture with these people. Maybe I should have went to so-and-so's house party. Maybe I just was making a, a mistake every time that I didn't make moves that... I mean, obviously, like submitting to a harasser just because you feel like you have to or to get stuff, that's not a choice that I'm comfortable with. But not that there's anything wrong with the social professional aspect of our work. But if it's not true to you and you don't feel safe in it, like I've been in Mm -hmm. so many writing spaces where like this would happen in Chicago all the time. And it would sometimes be a predominantly black space, but it sometimes was super regional or was mm. not very diasporic. So you could see mm. like someone from the South like not being treated that well or something, or you and like a Ugandan woman are having like a horrible moment, or like mm. someone who's like Jamaican American is having like an, an odd situation. There's a loving and really wonderful community, but sometimes in the, you know, fancy people and the decision makers, and we're having a quiet dinner here, and we're gonna listen to somebody read some poems and see if you can rub elbows with someone that could maybe facilitate you getting this little fellowship or getting this little residency. Like, you know, there'll be people that shake mm-hmm. my hand and then wipe it on their pant leg. It's one thing for that to to just like happen from the people that I expect that to happen to, but to feel like you're not good enough among other black people Mm. or among like black women specifically, that was really, really painful. And that was also mixed in with something that I think all of us have heard terrible rumors, right? Like about other writers, so-and-so did this way, this is how they fucked their way to the top, which I was never interested in because it's like, if someone can write, they can write. Like, I don't care what they're doing or not doing with their booty actually like I don't actually know what that has to do with me and if they seem happy like more power to them but like maybe this world is a series of negotiations and transactions for certain people and even if I maybe not as comfortable with certain choices and that's in part because I'm embodied in a specific way Mm. my association for the time I was a seven eight year old girl watching like uh, a time to kill was I'm gonna end up in a ditch period There's no leeway. I have to do what I can to protect myself and sometimes to protect people like me. And so there's a lot of commotion and violence and gossiping and different kinds of of roadblocks. And, you know, I know this is sensitive. This is hosted on like Poetry Foundation. But like, you know, (laughs) let's be real. Like, I, you know, I remember like I was like supposed to volunteer there because they were trying to do teaching artist work and maybe not a lot of people know I probably have more than 12 13 years of like work as a teaching artist in schools and Mm -hmm. some of that curriculum is still at play in schools in the midwest and so that's something both my parents are educators it's something that I take incredibly seriously Mm -hmm. and have tried to learn from the kids really and so was supposed to like volunteer for something but then when I came at the appointed time the person who's at the front desk responded like I came there to murder her like she actually got up and like clutched her necklace like clutched her pearls and was like what are you doing here like masterpiece theater shit like I'm like I'm supposed to see this person at 2 p.m it's 159 like I don't I don't actually understand what this is about but that vibe is like on one hand you can be invited to have a dinner with Patricia Smith or Ed Roberson and you're among Mm -hmm. your peers and there are all these beautiful readings and beautiful programs 
And a number of really lovely people that work there, like I'll say like the people who work on online stuff through the foundation especially, were super just on it trying to make things happen in the Chicago writing community and including the youth um, and including maybe like more, I guess, outsider writers or people that are considered mm-hmm. to have aged out or whatever. But then there was this other element of like, you're going to do a reading somewhere. And this isn't, of course, just the Poetry Foundation. It's at the Library of Congress. It's at some of these Ivy League institutions that you're supposed to be there. Sometimes your head is on a poster and you're told not to sit in a chair. Don't touch these books. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is, first of all, who are you talking to right now? Because I was not raised in the way that you're raised. And there's a limit to how far you can take this. And second of all, it's like, I'm supposed to be here. at a, It's a designated place at a designated time, but the people can't see you. It's like there's forever this mirage over you and, and others, you know? So that was tough. Like I, 2015, 16, at the moment where maybe I was getting a lot more attention for my work, I just kind of crashed. Like I couldn't even mm-hmm. physically show up to certain things because it was, I didn't know who I was. I didn't want to lose myself. I didn't want to make certain mistakes. I didn't want to lash out. I didn't want to fight anybody. I don't know a single writer who has not been through that and or suffered a pretty serious depression, actually, from mm-hmm. fe- feelings of failure, feelings that you let down the people who are coming behind you, um, feelings that you're just wasting your time. And that's not about like just like winning money or having your name in certain publications. It's like the recognition that we need as human, just acknowledgement that you're there and you're trying to do something. Mm. And I think we don't we don't talk about that enough. Mm. And recognition for your whole humanity, what you're talking about, right? Because I feel I've experienced what you're talking about, right? You go to these institutions and you're just a nigger until you have a name, right? Um, or until you're the nigger on the poster, um, and then everything switches differently, right? I know all so many places I've been until you are what like sort of they have come to see, right? You know that that there is this violent embrace of your body in the space um, and what you're asked to do. How many of us have been asked to, you know, smile through somebody else's grossness because mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. benefit um, of supposedly our career. Um, and I think it's really hard to write, especially institutions like you're taught to savor the things th- that mm-hmm. they have to offer you. Um, I think a mission for all of us has to be to disentangle from that vision of success or victory being in the hands of the institution. And it sounds like, you know, we all make it through our not maybe we don't all make it through. We all travel through or live in this pain and this complication with it. Levin, I'm wondering for you, it sounds like you also have found your way through that to some other answers. And I'm wondering, what did that process look like for you of redefining what victory and success would look like for you in your career? Where do you find your wins coming from now? What do you find yourself holding through in order to make it to the other side of all that violence and muck that we have to encounter and are trying to complicate and you know demolish, hopefully, within these institutions? Mm-hmm. What keeps you lit and lifted? Thank you for that question. Yeah, because sometimes so many of the people you admire are trying to give you advice to push through and you you want to also support other people knowing that everyone is going through some version of pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be really painful to feel like you fell short on the human level, on the community level, that you just don't have it in you to hear one more story, to have one more sad phone call to hold one more friend's hand because she has to be at an event with someone who assaulted her. Like, you just sometimes, 
as much as you want to be there, you can't hold yourself together. And so I had to find freedom in withdrawing because that is a big privilege to be able to to just withdraw and not have very serious consequences from that. I mean, at the same time, a bunch of teaching gigs just like dissipated at the same time. So even though it was a very financially precarious time, it gave me a huge time out to just think about what I want and how I want to be spending time, which was to continue to write. I picked up a camera again. It was to recommit to trying to figure out how to do anything in film. I feel successful when I hear, and Dana, as you know, this writer, Fatima Kamra's work. Oh, that's I my feel baby. <laughs> Sadia Hassan, Jamil Osman, they're all in the African Poetry Book Fund chapbook, which is amazing that they're all, you know, these people that you read for years, that they end up in the same place at the same mm. time together is so really exciting that that's happening right now. A Canadian poet, Oba Osman, Claudia Owusu, who's an amazing young filmmaker and poet, to just be able to sometimes be in conversation with them, to read their drafts, to know that, like, it's something that my sister would say, like, sometimes the thing that you go through, and I think that this is from, like, one of the sayings from the Prophet, peace be upon him, like, sometimes the thing that you are dealing with is not for you. Sometimes the information mm. is to share with other people. And that's part of the reason that it's incomprehensible at first. But hmm. now that I can warn people, now that I can reassure some people like, no, this isn't you. This isn't your work. You didn't fail in any way. People are prickly. You're going to get some weird emails. Someone that you thought was your friend is just going to ignore you altogether. You're going to feel like boo-boo the fool when you show up all excited with your little clipboard like or notebook trying to make something happen. And I seriously don't know anyone. Super famous people, people that are emerging, people who are incredible performers, people that have a ton of followers, you know, people that are just like disturbingly like beautiful and always have the best clothes. <laughs> I don't know any of them that haven't gone through some aspect of this and had to find a way to put a shell over themselves mm -hmm. and to be able to speak to that and name that and share that with people feels great because like I can give some of the younger emerging poets I hope that I can give them a shortcut like mm -hmm. here's how you can save some time these are some of the things that play and now you know mm -hmm. you're free to choose because many of us just went through it not knowing anything and you know we just eat food together and you know share french fries when broke together and cry about it and workshop and that's something that y'all's collective was doing for a while like just making things yeah. together and everybody just and knowledge sharing you know like stuff like like you're saying like you know part of i think what protected my spirit was like being able to have those open conversations about the bullshit that was going on in each of our lives and careers and so yeah. you know like how franny's mistakes or what franny has to go through with a press gives me some <laughs> some information about what i need to look out for the next time i go through it is um right or i see how somebody treats fati and then then i'm then i understand what armor i i need mm -hmm. to put up yeah how dare they miss i know fati but, but <laughs> man, i know shake someone right now yeah yeah but also the messaging that we get you know especially as non-white people that you should just be grateful Oh, you know, you're somewhere that you can't, your your mother could not be, that your grandfather could not be, that your great-grandmother could not be. Just do your best with it, you know? But it's like, I have to live this life. I'm just hmm. myself right now. I have to be a, the best quality person I can be 
when I'm teaching, when I'm reading someone else's poems for their MFA applications or because they're mm-hmm. making their own zine in an art collective. I have to be my best person in 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 my life, you know? And I think that there's there's no there's no amount of like money or privilege or things that can cover that up, but it is I think it's easy to start to get lost mm-hmm. in some kind of hustle and proving that you deserve to be somewhere and and it's very very tough work and and I am grateful for the people who are braver than me and who sat through painful dinners and you know because I've been chastised a lot for leaving for abruptly turning away from a conversation like Hmm. I can be very feral like I'm not in like amazing control of myself in certain situations like you know I'm not entirely neuronormative like I don't understand some of the things that are going on I don't know what people are talking about I don't know (laughs) so how do you share that um, with other people that you know maybe they didn't go to a certain kind of MFA or they didn't have a certain kind of mentorship or a certain Mm -hmm. kind of access you know to take that seriously because as much as I can feel like an outsider like I am so much an insider I fucking got my MFA dementia center like I know (laughs) (laughs) what it is that um, I mixed up in and have to be responsible for um, and Mm -hmm. to tell the truth about but you know in Jericho Brown is really in my prayers because that's someone that has absorbed things or be a little bit of a shield or behind the scenes Mm -hmm. tell the truth so that some of us did not have to suffer hmm. Um, hmm. in different ways. And I know that that's someone that did that. I know that like Natasha Trethewey is one of those people. There are a lot of people mm-hmm. who are like that. Kwame Dawes and Chris Abani are like that. Matthew Schnoda, all those folks at, at the book fund. There are, hmm. you know, where would we be if it wasn't for people that, ta- that had to push through because, you know, that's part of, of their dream is to really like build together or to, yeah. you know, be... Uh, a professor, in, you know, in a very specific space, what they had to to pass through and what it is that they had to have patience through so that I can leave a dinner that I don't like. You know, it's something that Evie Shockley talks about, too. It's like that I can be able to say now, like, you can't ask me those questions. Mm-hmm. I'm not having this conversation with you. Yeah. Um, you know, because the where did the invitation come from? How did I end up in the place? Okay, some of it is like I worked hard and some people like my poems, but a lot of it is like the credibility, you know, the reputation, the archive of people who are still here and people who came long before us. Sometimes it does feel like too heavy of a responsibility, but it's like I didn't cultivate other skills, so I'm not actually able to just quit altogether. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know how to be like a carpenter. I'm not like a horticulturalist. You're too good to quit. I think I the thing is, so like, and what you're chipping away at is like, how do we, how do we change the day? And I feel like you know this year has really brought a lot of these questions of like, how do we stop playing these multiple games that get us nowhere and get to the part of it that's about taking care of each other, um, that's about, like, you know, healing, mm-hmm. feeding each other in, like, physical, spiritual, mental ways. Mm-hmm. How do we get to a world where, like, for the poets, you're able to spend so much time being the, the craftsman part of the poet and not having to figure out all this other bullshit mm-hmm. um, that, that is legit bullshit. And, like, how do we just make a world where people can just be their weird-ass selves, making weird-ass poems? Mm-hmm. Um, 
But every generation, we pick up stewards of that mission, right? We pick up the toy and Cornelius's. Right. We get Jericho from this generation, mm-hmm. right? We get folks like, you know, you look at, I said, look at Luther Hughes, you know, who's so young oh, and like, so has already done so much well, for so many people. Yeah, and like, much, think yeah. about, like, it, I, I cry when I think about how many people Luther will help over his lifetime, mm-hmm, you know? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh. yeah. I also love, Lelon, what you said, like, I'm not grateful to the institutions. I'm grateful to God, mm. you know? Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that's such a good spirit to travel through this world where you, you know, one has to interact with a lot of institutions and the imperative to misdirect our gratitude there, you know? And it reminds me yeah. also of the line in your po- the poem that you read from... I'm the most romantic man I know, (laughs) which is like, first of all, a line. And second of all, I want to encourage like every poet listening to this podcast to move through the bullshit of Pobiz with the spirit. I'm the most romantic man I know, you know, like I'm the one that's going to to feed me like I'm the institution to be grateful to and like or like we are the institution to be grateful to like we're the most romantic man yeah I think it's the community for sure like it was other writers other artists sometimes teachers sometimes friends who work totally different gigs or are in between jobs and struggling but they it was always those folks that they shared without me having to ask Mm -hmm. you know when I didn't have food in my fridge they were the ones who took me to the grocery store. I remember one time, uh, Kenyatta Rogers, who's a fantastic poet, I feel like people are really like lacking that he doesn't have like an award-winning book that's out. So, you know, that needs to change inside of this year. You know, I know it's late in the year, but I don't care. (laughs) So I remember there's one time, and I feel like he would not like me to say this, but there was a time years ago where it was like after some event or something, and he didn't ask me any questions. I think that there was a period of that rough moment that I talked about from stress and just like from not having money, like just dropped Mm -hmm. a bunch of weight. But then it was weird because people just treat it like it was glamorous, which Mm -hmm. is like so terrible. It's like, I'm struggling. (laughs) I feel so foolish. But yes, I I guess I can, you know, find more dresses in my size now. I guess like, you know. He made a comment that alluded to to looking different, but it wasn't disparaging. And then everything that he was buying for himself, he just doubled up on. So he grabbed a thing of salad and grabbed another one. So he grabbed a thing of milk and grabbed another one. And then at the end, just gave me that. And it's like, I just thought, you know, you can have, you know, whatever. I grabbed extra stuff for you and then just like had dropped me off after a bunch of us were hanging out. And so the quiet way that friends like just take the bill or invite you to their institution to do a reading or quietly have someone else do it for you. I think Mm. that it would be such a lie to pretend that I'm just like so strong and, (laughs) you know, so uh, long suffering or something when actually what it is is that I've been held and carried by so many people. Mm -hmm. It's actually impossible to name them. And many, many of them were there when I didn't even know to ask for help never expected a thank you, never held a a grudge over me. And yeah, I don't know. It's something that I think about a lot because I guess like money is nice and institutional things are nice. And, you know, I, you know, I was, it was nice to be, you know, at Marfa and to be in this like amazingly outfitted house and this massive library and to just like, nobody can see you having like 70 books out at once. And you're just like, don't have to worry about anything, you know, everything's so orderly for you. I have really enjoyed and I know exactly what to do, especially at this age, like with that support and what to do with the timelines that are prescribed in there. But at the same time, like, is that actually what freedom is? 
spiritual orientation is a part of our identity. You know, like how we're embodied is is important. And this is something that I also talk about with one of my sisters a lot, but spiritual orientation where you are in the world and spiritual in the sense of what's immaterial, spiritual in the sense of values, what you do when no one can see you, when no one can verify what it is that you're up to. I do find it very hard to submit myself to another human being. I don't expect anybody to do that for me. And I, I don't I cannot tolerate because that's the familiarity that people have with black women and maybe specifically with black Muslim women to try to dominate me or to try to uh, humble me or something like that. It's like you don't have the skill set to do that. You don't have the poetry. You don't have the mind frame. You don't have the beauty. You don't have the heart. You don't have anything to do that because the way that I understand spirit and the way that I understand God is a presence that is not interested at all in humiliation. So how can I accept or or participate in a humiliation with other people. And I think that that's something that's sometimes haunting in the Pobiz stuff too, is like, what are the times where we stood by when other people were being left out, where maybe we weren't saying or doing anything mean, but we're hanging out with someone who was, or you know what I mean? You show up in that picture, you go to that dinner, you support the event of someone that you, you know is nice to you, but is dreadful to other people. Whether that's somebody, you know, who's a collaborator, someone who's a colleague or someone who occupies an extremely important position. That's also something we hope that we learn it as children, you know, like, who are you? When there are three people speaking, do you just speak to, to one person or do you make sure to include the other people? I know I fail at that. I know I have made lots of social mistakes and have embarrassed myself all over the country and in other countries. But yeah, like I, that matters to me. Like, okay, you're talented. You have lots of books. You won lots of awards. I don't even know the bios of some of my close friends, to be very honest. Like sometimes I'm at their reading. I was like, oh, well, you, like, you won that time. prize? Wow, Whoa. you're doing so great, babe. Like he <laughs> said, you so this is wild because that's not what we talk about. You know mm. what I mean? Like that's something that I do not talk about with Danique Kelly. We just like discuss whether we're going to have hot chocolate or not <laughs> or like if we're at home what we're putting in the warm milk this time like so I just think you know you have to recognize too like what you look like to other people even if you feel like you're personally failing there's people who are looking at the outside like wow this person has so much and has mm -hmm. the admiration and the friendship of people that I wouldn't even dream of emailing and so what do you do too with like an aura of prestige that I think is just inherent in poetry business stuff. Like, mm. that's not something that I'm saying that I take on personally, but it's definitely something um, that exists and is a form of currency, you know? And I think ultimately it matters to me, like, is this person nice? Like, are they nice to themselves? <laughs> are they nice to the people who are around them? Are they consistent? That's not meaningful to, like, put on a CV... I don't think, or fellowship application, I guess, but... <laughs> no, but I don't know. I, sometimes I wish, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I wish on the CV it, would, it was just, like, other people being like, this person was, like, really nice. Or be other people being like, this person is kind of a jerk. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, could we turn to your book? Sure. Sorry. I also, I know that my answers are long, so I, I don't feel any type of way about y'all cutting up what you need to cut off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it, the the thing is that <laughs> so your answers you. are beautiful the entire way through. So there's like no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I keep being like we like for the sake of the podcast, maybe we should interrupt or something. But then I'm like, I don't want to oh, interrupt please this. Do. No. no, please. 
it's helpful for me because my eagerness, I'm like, I have to show respect for this question and answer it every way that I can. Just no, in case. it's all good. That's so beautiful. Good. Daniel, Daniel will cut it up. Daniel will cut it up. But what's your, but just affirmation, what you're saying so far is fucking gorgeous. Fantastic. Gorgeous. So, yeah. Um, your book, Exiles of Eden, which came out when was it this last year? 18? 18? 19. 19? Yeah. 2019. 19, like, yeah. what year are we in now? Yeah, I know, right? 2056. <laughs> Look, I like legit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I thought it came out a while because it's just like so much has happened. Well, this year this felt point. like two years. And so anything that happened in like, yeah. I oh. do want to speak to the grief of this moment. Like, this is a tragic, mm. tragic time. I know that y'all recognize that. I know that you, your work is so serious and is a salve for people right now, but... It was. It's been really scary, and it's disturbing that there's not a place for people to put their grief. There's not. We're not able to come together, like in memorial, in a way to celebrate each other's lives, to hold each other up. You know, as we're grieving and mourning, I personally know so many people that, in a convoluted way, had to bury people that they love. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, want to give a, a moment to sit with that and to recognize that so many of us are struggling with that now. Um, and that it'll take a long time to recover from grieving and isolation, fearing and isolation. Yeah. There's a lot of grief at the heart of this book, too. It makes me wonder what things you learned about memorializing and about writing about and around grief that you think you've been carrying into all of the horror and grief of this year? I think definitely the recognition, like the practice with yearning theorems, mm. I think probably are the poems that really have that, where it's a comfort to a degree with what is lost or what was almost had mm. or what feels just out of reach. And that that is also very human and very beautiful and it's okay to miss, it's okay to long, it's okay to to just uh, simply feel like not good enough. And that even if something is a kind of crime against yourself or your humanity, like why should it be punished in such a base way? Why should we ap approach that with torment, you know? Is there a space where we can recognize that there is difficulty and that you're going to have difficulty with that? And so, you know, there are a lot of moments in the book that deal with loneliness. And I think something that probably isn't discussed, which really surprised me, I think there was one interviewer who did, that there is a pretty consistent conversation about climate change as well that's going on in a fair amount of the imagery and that is something mm. that has been really tough for me like what kind of world is this that we treat the bees like this and we treat the oceans like this like that really scares me like I'm just when I'm up at like four in the morning like that's one of the things that I'm thinking of like humans are so scary like besides racism and colonizing and or besides and like tied up with racism yeah, tied up yeah. with trying to you know this non-stop torment of our trans sisters and murder mm. as well like all that stuff is so terrible and so scary and then on top of that it's like fuck a coral reef fuck the amazon it's like really mm -hmm. i just this is the thing that really is too much because the ocean in many ways serves us and takes care of us as do the bees. And there's, you know, there are some very powerful forces who don't even have recognition for that, that don't even have reverence. And that is truly terrifying to me. I actually don't know how to get around that because I think that that 
baseline. Like Toni Morrison writes about that in, is it in Paradise, where she's just like losing the tether to the earth and being disconnected from it. I think that that every every evil thing that we can recognize flows from that, from Mm -hmm. that irreverence. Uh, But also, you know, not letting that rip me up too. Like this is a thing that's happening, but there's still beauty. There's still so much good. There are wonderful moments that I witness between people all the time. Overall, it does seem to me that humans are trying, that we're trying to make something happen. And that's that's worthwhile, even despite all the loneliness and disparity. We can have some recognition that I would like to think that maybe things are not forever. Maybe even consciousness is not forever. But like love is the only thing that's eternal. Love is the only thing that's boundless. That is definitely my understanding of what like God could be is just love. It's still depressing as hell. There's still, you know, sometimes I do just sit on the floor eating a hamburger or want to sit on the floor eating a hamburger and just cry. Like, <laughs> that's it. Like, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm struck by how like, you know, because the bees and the oceans are in danger, they are then called into your poems. They like beautify your poems. I don't know. I like I I'm I feel so grateful to have gotten to hang out with the bees and the oceans in your book this morning as I was reading back over it, you know? I think I think I, I'm reading through both the collections, right? Like I think you give so much power to things that are seen as in danger or that could be in danger, right? Like I think about how much reverence and fucking badassery you give to that kitchen dweller in mm. the first book. Like every time <laughs> like, yeah. she is a badass. Like yeah. you know what it's just like like I am domestic as fuck and like I like I don't know. It's just like such a them like fierce character reading through that and like these commands and spells she seems to be speaking it's just like this is a this is a bad motherfucker and so like the ocean right like yeah i get to hang out with the ocean the bees you let so many things live beside the grief mm-hmm. right so that way like these things are in danger but they still have they're still rife with power it's like that one poem where you know we're grieving actively but we're also having ferocious sex at the exact same time right uh, <laughs> <laughs> and i i appreciate how um, alive grief is in your work then, that it's not a static feeling, right? But that it moves all the way around and touches all these other feelings. Yeah, I know, wants things. I'm so excited for this fall because um, you have like, 8,000 film projects coming out. Yes. <laughs> and I'm wondering... It's odd timing. I'm like, well, whatever. But I looked, I was like, oh, now, now, now. Okay, like everything like <laughs> dropping. Um I'm wondering how, like, how, if we, as fans of your work, what we'll see of your poems whispering in those film projects. Mm. And if you could just talk about what they are, uh, what you're excited about of them, how, like, what you're hoping they do in the world. Yeah, thank you for asking about that. You've always been so great, too, about, like, not excluding other things that I do are interested in. Because sometimes people in writing can be really shady about that. They're like, oh, photographs. It's like, don't be funny. About this. this is really <laughs> weird. It's a weird thing to be funny about. So Son of the Soil uh, is directed by my boo, Joe Penny, but I I wrote for it, did some producing work and assistant directed. So that started from a photo series um, between uh, Joe Penny and Abdul Agam, who's an, an amazing Malian artist. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, and the stuff that I'm talking about, you can find little, little like teasers and trailers on my social media or on my website um, if you're curious. But... Uh, where poetry came in, it was really interesting because 
at first it can be tricky. Like, how do you go about writing for a documentary? You know,、mm-hmm. especially where you know Joe's a journalist, so he has pretty much like most of the questions that that he he wants to ask and the way that he wants the story to be shaped. Definitely in terms of、uh, kind of structure information, but then it's the moments of filling it in and and. Giving it some assistance on how to flow from one moment to the next, or what parts、mm. of the story are missing. So it's all real and it's all true, and it all follows、um, Abdu's quest to figure out more information about Mansa Musa. You know, the richest man in the history of the world. What he was up to. Why did he go to Mecca with all that gold?、Um, and how can we look at it now? But so、mm. the way the poetry entered was like. To take time with Abdu's interview, so、mm-hmm. when he's talking about moments of fracture, or you know how he's really offended that people don't respect the earth and the natural elements, to take portraits of him and his space, but first in writing, right? Like writing out、mm-hmm. a list of different things for B-roll and collaborating, you know, with the director,、um, with the DP to to capture that, because then that starts to fill in and becomes、mm-hmm. a part of the editing as well. It's like. We're talking about this one thing, but we see some birds take off, or we see, you know, some dust strays, or we see like an incredible amount of flags when talking about like a sense of respect for homeland, but also a sense of wariness about it, of being, you know, nationalistic or something like that, or where that doesn't always hold up. And so, the poetry definitely comes in in that, and also in.、Um, Because that project has some non-documentary elements, and so there's a,、mm-hmm. a cor- Mansa Musa's court reimagined, and so that that was scripted、uh, based on、um, Abdu and Joe's and my research.、Um, so that first film, it's in English and French, will be、uh, out somewhat soon. Like it should be in festivals、um, this fall、uh, in in October, and then also in October, The Ascendants, which is a Docu series following four women musicians from Chicago. I'm so excited!、Uh, a couple of musicians that I really, really love. I'll have to. I'll just send y'all the the screeners. Yay! Ooh, <laughs> I'll send it to you. <laughs> They, but、okay. yeah, thank you so much for your interest. I'm huge fans of them, so I it was just you know a privilege to spend time with them, and I think where poetry enters there for sure is in. Not only the shot list because that's the one where I was directing and also writing. So it's like, what's this? I want to see light, so much light. I want to see heroic port- portraits of these women. I want to see them in what they consider their safe spaces. I want to see them in moments of just kind of nervousness or tension, but that they're comfortable、um, mm-hmm. disclosing.、Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't always the easiest thing because it's it's not easy, especially if you're you've never been featured or have rarely been featured in a documentary. It's super awkward for people to show up with a bunch of equipment and like hang out with you in your bedroom or in the studio.、Um, but also making kind of music video style treatments for their songs because I thought it was really important to show young black women in process and at work, and that's、mm-hmm. the project. That's it. You will sit、mm-hmm. there. You will take time with it. You will enjoy what they're up to, and that's it. There's no negotiation about that. We don't need for people to be like have ten million followers before they've earned that or something. These young folks are incredible now. They're、mm-hmm. brilliant now, and we can、Amen. take some some time with that. And so. Um, I think you can definitely see in like the transitions and 
in the way that the extra footage illustrates um, their interviews and in some of the more creative treatments, just taking time with their stories and their lyrics and their tensions, their joys, their breakthroughs was really difficult, but also a lot of fun. Daniel plays a sound. All right, we are here today to play our first game of the day. Um, this one, Leathern, is called Fast Punch. In it, we're going to give you 10 quickfire questions that you will answer. You can give us the best of these categories or the worst of these categories. Which one would you want to be today, pessimist or optimist? Oh, I usually am an optimist, and I feel kind of bad because you said that most people pick best, so I'll just pick worst to help add balance. Word. Okay, tight. Just do worst. Worst. Yeah. Great. Love it. Love it. <laughs> wow. All right. Okay. Uh, I can start us off. Worst place to cry. Oh. <laughs> oh, you know, when I need to cry, just let it happen. I think crying in front of people, uh, especially mm. ones who are trying to be aggressive, mm. just feels very impossible for me. So mm. that is, I absolutely reject and rebuke that. Crying in front of haters. Okay. Um, Worst... American holiday. Fourth of July. Great. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> it's really President's Day. Shit. <laughs> Columbus Day. All of it. Fuck that. Solidarity with my indigenous peoples this Monday. Um, worst book to read in the morning. Huckleberry Finn or something. I don't know. Like it's <laughs> probably be like really dreadful. I don't own it, so I wouldn't know. I think that that would be a really terrible way to start my day. Start off your day with yeah, yikes. Um, worst fruit to eat fresh. That's wild. I just love all fruits, so I can't even front. I don't know. I love them all. They're so. I'll delightful. answer papaya. <laughs> oh, that one. Yeah, that one's a little tricky. It is not your Thank turn. Thank you for your help. <laughs> I I can't. I yeah. When it, I I am doing exactly the things people think that I'm doing at home. Like I sometimes have my head wrapped. There's incense. I'm eating a lot of produce. Drinking a lot of water. Slightly embarrassing. I'm Incredible. <laughs> Worst word. Oh, mange. Like that's the first thing I don't like that. Ooh, that's, a great, ugly. Uh, that's a great. That's a great answer. Like something is matted and uh, I don't know, like smelly spit, like something. I don't know. That is- and not even mangy, mange. Mange. Oh, yeah. Okay. Worst dried fruit. Oh, I'm not into apricots. Mm. I think that I think that's doing a lot. A dried apricot. Oh. Oh, dried mango. My mistake. It's dried mango. Don't do that to the mango. I know people like it. It's like the adults whole foods fruit roll up or something. But you know what? The mango is delectable. It's beautiful. It's perfect. Vanessa and I are both shocked silent right now. That's why we're not wow. speaking because we're just I'll take that darn position out of deep love for the fresh mango. Like don't wow. do not dehydrate my babies. Wow. Wow. All right. Worst advice to give a writer. You know, I would definitely say that telling people like right out the gate, especially in school, that they're not going to make a way unless they focus on the first book prize route. Mm. uh, I think that Mm. creates a lot of pain and problems and the fees are very expensive for people. It's obviously very nice. I'm the beneficiary of a first book prize, but I think that being the main focus or being told before you even finish school that that's super important 
uh, for poets specifically is is not so good. Amen. Um, worst Britney Spears song. I I'm not I'm not wild about that that one that's not a girl and not yet a woman even though it's emotional. Mm. I'm not. I something about it feels not so like we have lucky. I don't know that I need that. that he is a better version. That melancholy, like I don't need that tone again from Britney. Sorry to say, Miss Spears. I don't know. She seems like an ally. Her dad keeps fucking with her. We wish her the best. You know. Amen. Free Britney. Yeah. I mean, free Britney. <laughs> Worst job you've ever had. Uh, working at the call center for the Delia's catalog. Oh, that was pretty my bad God. in college. I was not into that. Uh, there would be like these people that call and order like corduroys and like 20 colors. It was a nightmare. But, oh, wow. You know, <laughs> so it wasn't a hard job, but it was a lot more like abuse and tension than you would expect from people ordering like Piccadilly bedsheets. Delia. <laughs> It was not fun. Stars. Actually, Worst. maybe the exact amount of abuse I would expect from people. <laughs> right. Now now that I've I've grown up and been to places where they serve like sparkling blood orange drinks and a lot of cheese, I'm like, oh, this is exactly right. <laughs> okay, this is the last one. Worst pen. The fake crystal bix. Uh-huh. They're very for especially yeah. for a lefty, they're very like it's like you're just writing in Morse code or something. <laughs> And then they suddenly just all spill out. And so I don't, I have no idea what brand it is or what they're called, or maybe even Bic does themselves make a terrible version of this. But <laughs> when I, I just shudder when I see those, like, why did you bring this here? Wow. I love boot, bootleg Bic crystal pen yeah, as an answer. It's so really, really good. <laughs> Hooray! You won. you won the game. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Wow. This feels great. I'm a winner. You are a winner. You're a winner, baby. <laughs> a winner, Thank baby. you. It's a fun game. I feel like I don't get invited to play games. If people don't invite you to play enough games, when I move to New York, we can have game nights. Because I, 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 yo, I own. <laughs> maybe I don't. I have it in storage. I own Operation. I'd bring that to game night. Like we're gonna do this, like a fully functioning operation with the batteries and everything. Like this is gonna get intense. Okay, we can play Operation. I, I, I'm gonna lose. I will win and maybe get a tad bit too emotional if we play Catan. It's like less colonizing than like Risk or whatever that game. Yeah, Risk, risk like, is. This oh one my is more goodness. like, hey, like you're not like fighting wars, but it's like you're making roads and building cities and like trading sheep and oh. wheat and all this other kind of stuff. So yeah. it's like very friendly colonization. You are there's also an army at foot, but they're not like attacking people. So there's like yeah, sounds it's kind of slightly sus, yeah. Sure. But Risk is like straight up call. I mean, I have cried so badly playing Risk. Playing Risk, yeah. Risk can be devastating. Well, also, I was playing with all white men. And then they were oh. like, like, I rolled the dice. I wanted to like, take Asia from you. Right. No, like, that's oh really traumatizing. I was like, so traumatized. I walked into the, a room once and these people were just hunched over Africa on the Risk game. And I just wanted oh, no. to flip the whole table over. Yeah, I didn't really, know this really game rough. existed. I feel like the last game, like, (laughs) triumph in a game was I once played the Pokemon card game and got Pikachu, and I was like, I'm going to evolve this into a Raichu and fucking destroy all of you. And people are like, that's ridiculous. I have these special outer space-ass Pokemon. (laughs) (laughs) Victory was mine that night. I was like... 
stick to the basics. We never played the, right the overseer of like, Pokemon. We didn't actually like, play by the rules. It was just like whoever had the best Pokemon card won. It's oh. <laughs> <laughs> just like I have a Blastoise. Well, I have a Mewtwo. You win. <laughs> it's like wow, Mewtwo. It's very, uh, it's very subjective and thrilling. It really was no strategy, pure class. <laughs> it's just like a pageant. It's just like a Pokemon pageant at that yeah. point. <laughs> That actually works. That works. All right. Um, okay, so now we are going to play our game, This Versus That. Um, Lalan, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast also. And thank you so much for agreeing to play these games. Um, of course. Thank and- you both for everything that you're doing and building and resisting um, for all of us and for this community. It's really my pleasure to be here. We are so lucky to have you. And we are going to squander that luck by asking you to play another stupid, stupid game. <laughs> which is... <laughs> We, we build all this respect and intimacy and then we bring it crashing the fuck down. God damn. It's exciting. <laughs> all right. So this is the game where we pit two things against each other um, and you have to tell us which will win in a fight. Uh, we have been talking about the business of poetry and moving through institutions. We've also been talking about the grief of climate change. And so for this, this versus that, we're going to do biz versus bees. I'll just share a brief story. First of all, once I was at the DMV in Columbus, Ohio, and this woman had a voice that sounded like a bunch of bees were inside of her. Whoa. She was like, is you in the lineup? But it was just like a <laughs> Like, it was amazing. So I just like, I should have taken her information or something because she should definitely be like recording poems and things. Wow. Shout out but to that bee haunted <laughs> Shout out to the, the woman who, Ohio. yeah, it was like the bee sound created a kind of, accent uh, for me it's definitely bees it's always bees <laughs> fuck a business or a biz the bees first of all are like perfect like they didn't even really need to evolve yeah. they make these like raw ass hives with these perfect shapes in them they know what they need to do they have a sense of structure they pollinate they're heroic I love bees so much. I love how they attend you. I love how they show they like, you know, some natural product that you're wearing or that's in your hair. I love how they linger in like the lavender and the lilacs. Everything about them is great. I never want them to die or to flee or to be put in a tough position. And business can wait. Business behind the bees. (laughs) Get back, biz. Bees first. Yay. Biz down. (laughs) Bees first, biz down. Great. You pulled such beauty out of that question. I know, out of our absolute <laughs> foolishness. Once again, may I say thank goodness for Ladan Osman. Um, Ladan, thank you so much again. Um, will you do us the honor of closing us out with a poem? Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe I can read the poem that Donna has mentioned, because I also don't usually read this. So I'm going to read one from the first book. Um, so this is The Kitchen Dweller's Interlude. I will put into this bread a storm gathering water. Do not take me. Do not include me in this. It's plea a cat's purr or a tree full of cicadas. I will uproot your olive tree. I will smooth the bark or send something to build a fungus like a small sun in its cavities. What is the smell of trouble? Love trouble is poison on the roof of the mouth. I want to have museum trouble, the way the air changes before someone cuts a portrait. 
Into this bread, I put the dog that runs after his owner's car, free as a horse. Also a horse's tail trying to unbraid, and a muzzle, and the taste of gutter water. I stare dumbly at it, abase myself. Is our love water I can't drink? I blow a note into the hot oven, into the gap between oven and countertop. That was Ladan Usman, pearl after pearl of wisdom. Jesus. I feel like that just became a lot of y'all's favorites. That was great. Like, yeah. <laughs> said all the necessary things. And, like, I just feel like a lot of, like, what she was saying about, like, what, how this world needs to change. And also, like, really feeling, um, like, you know, even just her saying the name of Fatima Kamara, like, calling in um, mm. those hopes. So, like, real people, right? Like, those that there are, like, real young poets um, that we know out here that, like, deserve the world, you know? Um, so I feel really The happy. world. <laughs> they deserve the world. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I love the ways that she was, like, talking about what changes are necessary or that she hopes for um, for kind of, like, the future of people navigating the literary world. And, you know, Denise, we were people who navigated the literary world and <laughs> all of the fuckery. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like t- together. And I mean, but like in the, those early stages, you know, in 2012, when we were, when both of us were working on our first books and we were still talking about how to move from being a slam poet to somebody who um, understood things about line breaks, mm-hmm. um, you know, and <laughs> yeah. we had folks who helped and guided us through that process as well as us laying paths for ourselves. Do you have like a particular hope that you wish for the people who are like us in 2012 now in 2020, like for like the younger poets who are coming up or more emerging poets who are coming up um, Hmm. alongside of us? Yeah. And they might not even be younger, right? It's just like anybody who's like, you know, sort of entering this world or this like, you know, this thing that we call being a poet. Um, I think my more constant hope is like that we continue to like create and transform spaces so that people can be who they are the whole time instead of only after they show up. Uh, mm. you know, I think so many of us um, feel like it's almost like a dress code, you know, like we have to like mm. be right whatever a certain way in order to get through the door and then maybe we can like do what we really want to do one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also hope that there's like a continued like spirit of like trying to share the wealth too. And I think, like, you know, just giving people paid for this stuff. I wish more people got paid for being poets, you know? Um, that's a hope, you know? And that it wasn't such an like, expensive thing, right? You think about how much money you can put into, like, getting the first book, um, all mm-hmm. this other kind of stuff. I, I just wish more people, like, the space to, like, do their thing, right? Um, and to, like, be adequately, like, seen and, like, fed for the work that they do. That's my hope. Yeah. How about you? I know you got, you, I want to hear the good hope in your good heart. Yeah. I hope that, folks keep inventing new traditions like new artistic traditions and not just kind of like trying to emulate what's come before although that's also great you know but like i hope i just am excited to see what like new kind of writing um Mm. is going to emerge in the poets who are like more emerging than us holding tight to the people around you and loving them while also like making the next new mind-blowing thing. Boom. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Should we thank some folks and get on out of here? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> 
I just want to thank anybody who lets me pet their dog these days, um, <laughs> because I know that it's I know that there's like, you know, there's some risk in letting a stranger pet your dog. And I understand that. And I think that for you to allow me to say hi to your little friend is um, something that I just cherish and really appreciate. So shout out to you, dog owners who are letting me particularly not necessarily everybody else, but me in particular pet your dog. <laughs> right. I'm going to thank like app delivery drivers who I have like been having a lot of FaceTime with these last couple of months. I appreciate y'all. Thank y'all to the ones who have y'all mask on and stuff like that. I've been trying to tip extra um, a little bit because I've been trying not to go as many places as, you know, one tends to go. Um, And y'all niggas be driving quick. I be watching on the little app. I I, Like, I know how long it takes to drive from my house to Chipotle and y'all be zooming. And so I appreciate you bringing me (laughs) that burrito um, so quickly. All of y'all. Keep yourself safe. And, you know, I feel like that's like a, just like a great side hustle, too. I've done it a little bit. Uh- <laughs> we would also like to thank uh, Idalmi Noriega and Itzel Blancas at the Poetry Foundation. Thank you to our producer, Daniel Kisslinger. Thank you to Post Loudness. And thank you uh, to all of our listeners for continuing to uh, follow us on this season of Versus. Mm-hmm. Make sure you like rate and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and make sure you follow us on Twitter at S the podcast. We were suspended for a little bit. I think I don't know if we had did some. Maybe uh maybe I don't know what happened. I don't know. Maybe I like accidentally posted a nude to the wrong account. I don't know what happened. Oh, but <laughs> well, I guess you can't get suspended for that on Twitter. But anyways, uh make sure you follow us there and until next time, y'all be great, be well. I love you. You specifically love Bye, y'all. y'all. <laughs>